If you're listening to this, it means Yom Kippur is over and we can eat again. Welcome to Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by senior writer Liel Leibowitz. Hello, hello, hello. And deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi. Hi. And later in the show, we'll be talking with retired Harvard law professor and professional purveyor of chutzpah, Alan Dershowitz. He's the author of a relatively new book about Abraham, whom he calls the first lawyer. And then we'll be joined by Muslim comedian Nagin Farsad. But Stephanie and Liel, let's talk about the news of the Jews in the past week. The big Jewish news this week, as I see it, is that Shiksa Diva Ann Coulter sent out a tweet during the Republican presidential debate when all the candidates were sucking up to Israel. And the tweet read, how many effing Jews do these people think there are in the United States? It ignited a firestorm of Jews and non-Jews mad at Ann Coulter. Stephanie, were you mad at Ann Coulter? No. Um, I think basically what she was responding to was all these candidates were playing the I love Israel more game, which is always weird to watch, but always like kind of a little fun. And what I think the problem with her remarks was, was that she really is conflating Jewishness and Israel in a way that's misleading. And also, I mean, the Republicans appeal to Israel isn't just to appeal to Jews. There's there's a larger thing at work there. And so for her to be like, how many effing Jews are there in this country? First of all, is a very crude tweet. And for like a pundit, you would think she would just sort of have known a little bit better. Yeah, we don't like being called effing Jews. Well, I think you're both not for the first time missing the point. I don't think this is a provocation. I think this was a straightforward question. She wants how to know many? how many effing Jews. Now, a friend of this podcast, A.J. Jacobs, actually took uh, the challenge uh, to Facebook and said, you know, let's assume that uh, Jews eff uh, in uh, about the same proportions as the general population, which means about half of us, meaning about, you know, 3.25 uh, million effing Jews. But, but let's say that she meant something even more sophisticated. Let's say that she meant how many effing Jews are there right now at the moment of her sending the tweets. And AJ actually did the math here. So you mean Jews who are effing? Jews who point. are at this <laughs> very moment effing. AJ, uh, who is a genius, did the math, and he said that the average person, and again, we're assuming <laughs> Jews are, spend about one uh, divided by 720th of the time having sex. So divide 3.25 million by 720. You get 4,513. 4,513 uh, 4, Jews effing at any given moment. So I just want to say if, if any one of those uh, 4,513 4, effing Jews uh, are listening to us right now, you have a really unorthodox taste in, you know, lovemaking atmospherics. But the best part is AJ Jacobs probably figured out at the end of this that he's related to Ann Coulter through his <laughs> massive family <laughs> That's tree. Very, very That's true. Um, well, from the effing Jews into the frying pan, um, Yom Kippur was this week, which means that uh, Orthodox Jews, many of them, not all, some, celebrated Yom Kippur by buying live chickens and then slaughtering them. They paid over live chicken price with the proceeds going to synagogues. This ritual called Kaporot, or in Yiddish Kaporos, is a fundraiser for many synagogues in, say, Brooklyn. The Jews swing the chickens over their heads three times and then hand them off to a slaughterer who slaughters them. Uh, the sins of the swinger are transferred onto the swung chicken as if it's a biblical scapegoat, but it's a scape chicken. According to the New York Daily News this year, 50,000 chickens were to be slaughtered on the streets of Brooklyn. I have no idea how they got that number. I think they made it up. And then they give the, the bodies to the poor, basically. They give them the, the chickens, chickens to, the, to the poor. To poor Jews. Yeah. Or can poor Goyim eat the chickens? I don't know. 
Do we? Because they're sin loaded. They're loaded down with sin. They're like, you guys eat these. You guys eat these. <laughs> um, animal rights activists from the yes, this is a real group. Alliance to end chickens as coporus were mad. Um, how do we as non-chicken swinging Jews feel the about this A-E-C-K. ritual? The, the almighty AECK. The AECK. Do we are we embarrassed by our more religious brethren swinging the chickens? Are we rooting them on as authentic spokes swingers? Well, this is something that my family um, used to do until very recently. I think my mother till this day, she, you know, drives her Mercedes to the marketplace and like walks out in her Prada shoes and grabs a chicken and swings it. I like it. her already. I have to say I, I remain... I have tremendous respect for freedom of religion. I, I support, you know, the, the continuation of this custom, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, 50,000 chicken is like a slow day at your local KFC. But um, it is kind of weird. The whole swinging an animal over your head. At least it's a chicken. I mean, it could have been like a goat, which would have been infinitely more difficult. I think it's progress that we've moved on from scapegoating to scapechickening. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of places, this ritual has been replaced with money. Like you give money. I mean, this has sort of become almost a a ritual of a ritual. Um, but I, I understand animal rights activists. It's 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 weird. And it's weird to think that, like, in 2015, there is, like, animal slaughter going on in Brooklyn, like, ritual animal slaughter, just on the side of the streets. Okay. But at the same time, it reminded me of what you were saying, Mark, when we were talking about the schools, the yeshivas, that, like, this idea that people still do these things that might not jive with what everyone else is doing, that there's actually something nice about these pockets of traditionalism. And people get to eat chicken. People love eating chicken. And are the chickens going to be killed anyway? Like, this is what I'm confused by. All right. So as as the house vegetarian here, let me say that it is absurd. Are you really? You knew that, didn't you? Did I? I've cheated when out with you because you take me to non-vegetarian friendly places. Yes, I He's do. He's an enabler. It, just as people who once in a while drive on Shabbos can still say they're Shomer Shabbos, even if they cheat once a year, I, I, I own the title vegetarian. Can I say I'm much more religiously offended by vegetarians than I am with anything done in Kaporas to chickens? Well... That's my, well, you're offended by the vegetarians? Yeah, I'm offended by your life choices. So, okay. So my feeling (laughs) is the same as the Santeria practitioners in the famous Supreme Court case of, yes, it's called this, Lacuma Babaluaye in Hialeah, Florida, who, uh, which is- You practice this one, don't you? I practice this one, which is that at least these animals are being killed for spiritual reasons. Most animals are killed just because they taste good. And I think it's a higher calling to keep alive old traditions, even obviously silly ones, than to eat chicken because it's tasty, especially factory farm chickens. And I think these chickens, and I'm being deadly serious here, deadly for the chickens, uh, are pro- probably have had better lives than your average factory farmed chicken. And if I may, they're probably happy. If, if I was a chicken and, and I had two choices, right? I die in this horrible mass factory or someone says, okay, listen, Leibowitz, they're going to swing you. They're going to say a blessing. You're going to be, you know, both dinner and a blessing. It's like dinner yeah. and a show. Oh, what chicken wouldn't want that? I'd rather go that way. Oh, than... totally. Um, finally, if you're listening to this in reasonably timely fashion, the Pope may still be treading the land. Uh, Leo, you love the Pope, yes? I I am not a very uh, big fan of the pontiff. You said pontiff. I said pontiff. You, you big vocabulary rhyming, whore. Rhyming, rhyming with yontif. And ganif. Which it would really actually be. Would it be yontif when the pontiff lands? Yes, it will. <laughs> it would, right? <laughs> well, I'm all about this rock star pope. I like him. And I like the idea that this is like One Direction meets Justin Bieber, like the level of crazy that this is going to be this is, when he this gets is, here. This is the PR pope. I, I don't have strong feelings about the papacy one or the other. I, I, wish, I wish Catholics well. I'm... I want them to have a pope they like rather than one they dislike, but it's their bag, you know? 
Right, but here's here's the thing. I, I I obviously I obviously support that, right? But 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 there's something that we really need to take into consideration. If you are serious about this new wind, you know, uh, blowing in in the halls of the Vatican, uh, and you're and you're the effing pope, uh, you have <laughs> how many? He was not effing during the Republican right. debate. He has he was watching the actual power to make changes. For example, uh, there are 35 nations in the world today that ban any sort of abortion, including those designed to save the mother's life. This results in the death, horrible, painful, slow demise of hundreds of women in each country each year. Now, I'm not making a religious argument here, but I'm saying if you're really serious about this, rather than saying, oh, well, you know, we'll give you some sort of uh, uh, absolution in, in this jubilee year, you may want to use your power to actually do something. I mean, it's much cooler to talk about climate change and the poor. He's basically, he's basically, you know, a PR pope. It's like Obama all over again. It's hopey, changey stuff. But uh, God forbid we'll actually use our power to pursue our goals. That would be hard. But, you know, here's the thing. You're making the mistake of thinking that anyone cares what he thinks about doctrine. He's a symbol, you know. Look, Paul VI reiterated the teaching in 1968 about birth control. Catholics still control births like crazy and not just by aborting, but actually by using, as my ninth grade biology teacher used to say, condoms. Condoms? <laughs> he used to say condoms. Who, who is that person? <laughs> it was Mr. Venable, who was a great teacher, but he pronounced it condom. But you remember. Oh, you I don't love forget. condoms. You don't forget when you've seen a condom on a banana. By the way, that is probably <laughs> a much better pronunciation, considering what the thing is shaped like. It is a condom. I mean, look, forgive me for thinking that, you know, words have meanings in institutions. Have Not power. in religion. Not but, in religion, but, but, they don't. you know, I do. If you really mean what you say, you have the levers of power at your disposal. Pull them. Our Jewish guest today, our indubitably Jewish guest, is Alan Dershowitz, former Harvard law professor, O.J. Simpson appellate lawyer, uh, lawyer for one of the actors in Deep Throat, for Mike Tyson, for Leona Helmsley, for convicted sex felon Jeffrey Epstein. He is the author of a new book about Abraham, whom he calls the first lawyer, and also on Kindle, a new book called The Case Against the Iran Deal. Welcome, Alan. Thank you so much. You forgot to mention that I was also the defense lawyer for Abraham, for Jesus, for for Haman, uh, and for Moses. Uh, we've, we've had all of them on trial in classrooms and in other venues, one in Temple Emanuel last year. I hope Jesus won. You, <laughs> it was a hung jury. Uh, so uh, you're odd with, uh, with Leah Leibowitz. And also uh, our first questioner for you today on our, our panel of, of Jewish experts is uh, Stephanie Butnick. Hi. Um, so I know, you know we can ask you about anything, but I have a really important sure. question for you. Something that always comes up when Natalie Portman is mentioned, and I'm in the company of sort of like intellectual Jewish guys, they love to say that she was your research assistant and that she is thanked in the acknowledgments for your 2003 book, The Case for Israel. Can you confirm this Jewish urban legend? Oh, of course it's true. Um, Not only was she my research assistant, but uh, I sent her to Israel to do particular research on uh, some specific subjects that couldn't be researched in the United States. She was also my star student in a seminar on neuropsychology and law, taught jointly by me and the chairman of the psych department, uh, Stephen Coslin. 
I didn't know who she was because her name was uh, Natalie Hirschlag. And I'm not a big Star Wars person. So uh, I had no idea that we had a relatively well-known person in the class. And she wrote her paper for me on a new type of lie detection, which uses a brain stimulation. Uh, she is absolutely brilliant. If she had not been an actor and obviously an Oscar-winning actor, I think she would be a star a psychologist with a distinguished academic career. Now, t- to be clear, what is the hourly rate that someone like her would have received as the research assistant for a professor like you? Oh, that's seven fifty an hour. <laughs> uh, that is $7.50 an hour. I remember when I first uh, got my first job as a lawyer uh, while I was teaching at Harvard, they said they were going to pay me um, um, 85 an hour. And I said, I used to get a dollar an hour as a as a babysitter. Can't they raise it from eighty five cents to a dollar? And the guy said, No, no, no. We're going to pay you eighty five dollars an hour. I said, Somebody is going to pay me eighty five dollars an hour for my work. I couldn't believe it. Um, so my question for you is this: When, when I was twelve uh, or so, I read your book Chutzpah. I read it very quickly, and as I recall, it argued. And tell me if this is fair: that Jews aren't sufficiently pushy, and that we need to be pushier. That's right. And and I think the Iran deal proves that. Yeah, well, we'll get to the Iran deal to say, but I just want to say, first of all, my parents did not feel that the book that 12-year-old Mark Oppenheimer needed to read was one telling him that he was insufficiently pushy. Um, but, well, I think they're wrong. I think, you know, Jewish kids should be uh, more pushy and uh, more aggressive and demand what is rightfully theirs, uh, whether you're 12 or or. or 120, it's probably a good lesson. All right. Well, so my question was, are we still insufficiently pushy? And I guess the answer is yes. The answer is clearly yes. Um, and certainly in Europe today, where, you know, you have chief rabbis saying to Jews, don't wear a kippah. You know, I never wear a kippah. I'm not orthodox. But when I go to Paris, I wear a kippah. And I wear a kippah that, that has a, an American flag and an Israeli flag side by side. Because I want to show those guys I'm not afraid of them. And we have a right uh, you know, we are first-class citizens anywhere we go, and we don't have to be shashtil, shanda from the goyim, as my grandmother would always say. We have not only the right but the obligation to speak up, not so much on our behalf, because we're in pretty good shape, but on behalf of our brothers and sisters who are in trouble around the world, and on behalf of human rights, on behalf of women's rights, gay rights, we have an obligation to speak out. And speaking of our inability to uh, fight injustice and stand up for uh, our own self-interest and preservation, uh, you wrote a fantastic uh, Kindle book about the Iran deal. Beyond, you know, the, the, the facts, beyond the, the charts, beyond the numbers, how do you emotionally react to the fact that so many Jews seem to be uh, simply unwilling to, to kind of stare this ugly reality to face, not just the nuclear reality, but also... The, the atrocities of the Iranian regime? Well, I think it's what I said in Klitschburg. Jews want to get along. Remember, Abraham, there are two Abrahams. The Abraham who fights with God and the Abraham who says, all right, God, you want me to kill my son? Sure, okay, no, no problem, I'll do it. Uh, and that reflects the two faces, a kind of, of how Jews have reacted in the world. And I think there are a lot of Jews uh, who don't like this deal but don't want to stand up to the president, uh, don't want to make waves, don't want to make trouble. There are also some who think it's bad, but the, the uh, opposition is worse. It would be worse if we rejected it. There, sh- there should have been great Lincoln-Douglas debates about this foreign policy decision. Instead, the president cut it all off. Well, you were, but this, this, this president is one you 
supported in 2012. And right. and, and right. you were very after having supported Hillary in 2008, you came out for the Obama in 2012, said it was very important to reelect him, it was important for Jews to vote for him. But you loathe the Iran deal. Do you, do you regret your Obama support? Well, I, I, I don't regret my vote for him the first time. I wish Hillary were president. I'd like to see Hillary president now. Um, I'm dubious about my second vote. Look, I also support a woman's right to choose, uh, gay rights, uh, uh, a gun control, separation of church and state. I was thinking of writing my next book called Why I Left the Left But Couldn't Join the Right. I can't be a Republican. I can't support their social policies. On the other hand, I don't like uh, the administra- this administration's approach to Iran and foreign policy in general. So I'm stuck, uh, like so many other liberal Jews who oppose the Iran deal and who oppose the foreign policy in general, I'm stuck. I don't have a party that I'm comfortable with. But a Jew being uncomfortable, wow, that's a headline. <laughs> you know, going back through a lot of your former statements, uh, you, you have a habit of calling critics of Israel bigoted. You like the word bigot. And, no, uh, I don't call critics of Israel bigoted. Some of my best friends are are, are you've critics called, of Israel. Okay, Let, you, uh, you've called uh, some critics of Israel bigoted. in Israel, but I think there are bigots okay. who are critical of Israel and not critical of other countries that have human rights records that are abysmal. Yeah, right. So, right. So, so here's the question, which is, who do you think is providing effective, non-bigoted, but ruthless criticism of Israel right now? Uh, Amos Oz, um, my friend uh, in Israel. Um, uh, Yitzhak Herzog, uh, the leader of the opposition uh, in Israel. Um, there are many uh, within the American establishment in APAC who are critical of Israel. I'm critical of Israel. I've been critical of Israel's settlement policy since 1973. I wrote my first piece against it, uh, uh, against the settlements of Ilan Moreh. Um, I've been opposed to Israel's peace process. I want to see a two-state solution. I want to see it now. So what? So, so how do we know? The, so how do we know? But the, the way you're describing yourself, you sound like a lot of my friends who agree with who, who feel that you've maligned certain people as bigots. How do? How could I tell? What is bigoted criticism of Israel versus what, your criticism well, of Israel look like? Very simple. Okay, very, it's simple. very simple. Bigoted Great. criticism of Israel is one that singles out Israel and says. But all movements only, single you know, out some country. Let me give you an example. Okay. When the president of Harvard, Lowell, in the 1920s, said we have to keep Jews out because Jews cheat. And Learned Hand wrote and said, but Gentiles cheat too. And Lowell wrote back and said, you're changing the subject now. We're talking about Jews. Right. You cannot talk only about Israel or the nation state of the Jewish people. If you want to have BDS, fine. Have BDS, but have it against China, Cuba, Russia, uh, and 150 other countries in the world. And then get to Israel about 170th on the list. If you don't, that's bigotry. So I mean, you're only singling wait, out wait, wait. Israel. So wait, so is that bigotry. so were the were the the anti-Chinese forces who are concerned with freeing Tibet was that anti-Chinese bigotry? No, let me tell you why. If you're a Palestinian and you want to focus only on Israel, that's understandable. But if you're a Presbyterian in the Midwest and only care about Israel, if you're Corbyn, uh, who's the head of the Labour Party in England, and only care about Israel. That's bigotry. Okay, um, we have to go in a second. Do you do you want to tell us what the argument of of the Abraham book is? Because we didn't get to talk much about that. Oh, the Abraham book is about how Abraham was really a great lawyer, and I take six stories from the Abraham book. Obviously, the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, the arguing with God, the shattering of idols, and I use them as paradigms for six kinds of lawyers, Jewish lawyers throughout history: the idol shattering lawyers, the revolutionaries the ones who fought against the apartheid in South Africa, who fought for civil rights, those who gently argue with the Supreme Court, real estate dealers. Uh, Abraham was a great real estate negotiator. 
And I use it as a way of exploring why are Jews so active in the legal profession? Why have we been persecuted so often? Jews on trial, Jews as trial lawyers. And so it's a way for me to explore a profession that I love and have been in for over 50 years and uh, based on biblical sources, which I love and have been studying for 70 years. Well, thank you so much. Um, I wish you luck finding a way to fill all the time in your retirement. I know that must be very tough for um, you. <laughs> it's very hard. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Much. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. And now, our legendary feature, Gentile of the Week. This week, we welcome Nagin Farsad, comedian. Can we excuse the feminine comedian? I'm fine with that. Good, because we're bringing back Jewess. Oh, right. Yeah, so, I heard that on the last episode or something. Comedian, filmmaker, and creator of the Hug a Muslim campaign. She's currently suing the Metropolitan Transit Authority for refusing to run her ads on city buses with messages like, The Ugly Truth About Muslims. Muslims have great frittata recipes. Is that lawsuit still active? That lawsuit is still very active. There was a motion to dismiss, and then uh, our lawyers did a motion to shut up. That's crazy, I think. And these are all legal terms. (laughs) And and so now we're in that mode where uh, we're just waiting to go to the next step, which I think will basically, this will run its course for some several months. I have to say, I don't even care what the lawsuit's about. Anyone suing the MTA is a friend of mine. <laughs> I support you a thousand percent. What right do you have to, to care? You haven't used the MTA in nine years with your Uber and your I, I Lyft. And... Uh, I know, but still, you know, <laughs> I one, mean, one wants I... to fight evil wherever one finds evil. I love the MTA. I use it all every day, and I'm a big fan, um, and they mostly get me places on time. Uh, but this was just crazy. Do you want me to explain what happened? Or Oh, sure. <laughs> well, okay, so we tried we did this poster campaign in response there's like a kind of known Muslim hater um, she's actually one of these people that's like uses her uh, uh, being a fan of Israel I think as cover to like hate Muslims this and is really, Pamela Geller Pamela, Pamela Geller looks yeah. a lot like Mark Oppenheimer's high school girlfriend we, say that. <laughs> we should have had her on will you come on with her sometime I would love to come on with her that would be awesome booking okay um, but, uh, but so she did an anti-Muslim campaign throughout the MTA she spent hundreds of thousands of dollars there was you know, subway ad. I mean, it was a whole thing. And, and you know, my thing was like, oh, this is lame. Like, you know, I should do a campaign. I, I got together with my co-producer of a film I made called The Muslims Are Coming. And we were like, okay, let's see how much this would cost if we could just do the minimum ad buy, which is $20,000. And so we went to our other, like, dirtbag friends on the internet and said, would you, you know, would you donate this much um, for these posters? They did. We worked with the MTA for several months. And at the last minute, they said, said, oh, no, we can't put up um, posters that have political content because apparently frittata recipes are political content. Oh, deeply. What do the other ads say? Um, I mean, they're all ridiculous. Like one of them says, you know, uh, facts about Muslims. And then it'll say, like, you know, Muslims invented the concept of a hospital. Number two, Muslims invented Justin Timberlake. Number three, grown-up Muslims can do more push-ups than baby Muslims. And then it's just sort of, and then it says, like, no, on is that the really true, <laughs> Prove it. Um, and then, you know, and then it says, like, one of these is definitely true. But I sort of think all of them are true. So, you know, there's we did a bunch of a series of, like, the fact ones. Um, we did a, a version where it says Muslims hate terrorism. They also hate. And then a really exhaustive list of stuff Muslims hate that starts with, like, you know, someone mentioning that they went to Harvard within the first five minutes of you meeting them <laughs> and ends with kale. Um, so uh, They're just like us. <laughs> exactly. 
Uh, so yeah, so they, because of that, we decided to sue the MTA, and that is why I am currently the kind of person that sues the MTA. I have to bring you down uh, from this from this very very entertaining. Uh, on, 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 on the same theme, when you watch you know the Republican presidential debates mm-hmm. and you see many candidates who are treated seriously as sort of front runners mm-hmm. and you know want to be front runners, uh, I would say at best flirt with, at worst you know actively date, uh, even sometimes f, uh, even sometimes f, <laughs> anti-Muslim bigotry of the most rancid sort. Yeah. You know, let me let me play Freudian for a second. What 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 what, what goes through your head? Oh, like Are when you screaming at the TV ben when Carson you watch is on this Meet stuff? the Press and says that I don't ever think a Muslim should be president. For, for, for example. example, I mean, like so so that my options are like, do I want to have sex with them or do I get mad? Um, I I think it's it just I find it stunning because it's like. 2015, I just can't believe that it's still things do like that still that get said. Do you tune that stuff out, or do you obsess over it and like get enraged? What's what's your you know mechanism um, of defense? I write a tweet, so that's <laughs> <laughs> that's the first uh, line of action. Okay, um, no, and and I mean sometimes like I'll write more. Um, it depends on how ridi- ridiculous it gets, and I think that some of these things are so insane. Like when Ben Carson goes on Meet the Press and says that stuff it's it's sort of like at this point you're doing yourself in as a serious candidate i mean if you hadn't already although maybe the american appetite for ridiculousness um and just obvious bigotry is so much greater than i thought it was you know with what we've seen we are with people donald of, trump's campaign we are people of great appetites we, <laughs> we are we can consume we, as much bigotry as you feed us we, we contain size the bigotry That's right. uh, for this current election round it is crazy so for a muslim comedian these are the best of times material <laughs> writes itself yeah i mean you know it's funny i was uh i'll, I'll give you guys a little taste i um I, you know i have a new boyfriend uh which thank you and is he muslim he is not he is an african-american um with a smattering of polish so we are one of those <laughs> typical iranian american african-american Do your parents uh, know they my know parents we... know they're really happy they had with their a hint of polish is my favorite <laughs> it's like a jackie mason <laughs> just you know, a smidge but... well i just I want to break because because we think that he might have like a little a little Jew in him. So that a little would... Jew or a little anti-Semite. The Poles, you know, they, <laughs> they both. They yeah, both. it could go. It could or, go either Or his way. family hid Jews. It's it, the, it's <laughs> he's mixed up with us somehow. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so and and like you know, one of one of the bits I've been doing recently is just like you know, I'm Iranian American. He's black, and our relationship is exactly what you think it would be. Like every night, I um, put him in a loving chokehold, and in response, he um. He he, you know, waterboards me to get the coordinates of my sleeper cell. And he comes home and he's like, woman, where's my watermelon? And then I say, no watermelon, only saffron, lily, lily, lily. And that is exactly um, our relationship, uh, according to Donald Trump. Like, that is literally. Yeah, I was about to say, according to probably like 25% yeah. of the American population. <laughs> I have a question. Now, I'm going to say of my friend Stephanie Liel that being the kind of Jews we are, we don't think that a lot of the Torah actually happened. Like a lot of it is just like, ooh, pretty stories and stuff like right. that. 
I have had the experience of talking to a lot of Muslim American entertainers, activists, and so on, and I ask that same question. I say, like, you know, you're, you love your culture, you even love your people, maybe even you love the practice of your religion, but your scripture, like, it's total nonsense, right? Because scriptures are all filled with nonsense. Yeah. And then they do this thing where they're like, well, can we go off the record for a second? And I'm like, sure. And they're like, of course, it's total nonsense. But if I say that, I lose street cred. Like, the Muslim community, yeah. you still have to say the Quran is, if not literally true, at least highly specifically true. Right. So what... I am not one of those people. Okay. And do you then feel the blowback of like, well, then you're not a Muslim because to the hardcore people, the the role of an ethnic Muslim is also to proclaim religious truth. Yeah. I've, I I think the weird thing that happened with me is that I grew up around no other Muslims. So there was never, I never had any peer pressure. And I think peer pressure has a lot to do with like how well or poorly you represent your religion. And also, you know, it, it, on questions like that, because I... I just never I was just like, well, clearly this is kind of all ridiculous, but I like the cultural, you know, coming together. Um, And and I'm just you know, I'm a terrible Muslim in the strict definition of like, you know, I don't know, eating pork and having had sex many times. And there is like some measure of blowback. But at the same time, there's all these Muslim women that come to me and they're like, it's amazing that you're so open and so honest because we all have sex. We all have pork and we all don't care. Um, but I know, I mean, I know exactly who you're talking about. I know Kameet, like I know uh, fellow Muslims who pretend like they don't drink and they clearly drink. Like they won't be seen taking a photo with a glass of wine. And I'm like this, we are not, we're Muslim Americans. Like we ha- we have to go about this a different way. Did you ever perform uh, in, 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 you know, to predominantly Muslim audiences outside of the United States? No, I've never Do done that. To? I mean, in the Middle East, like there's some countries in the Middle East that I would totally, you know, I would perform in Jordan or Lebanon um, without any issue. Uh, I think there's some other countries that I'm like, I don't know if they would really go for me. Um, and then there's some countries where it's just would be straight up illegal. And then there's some countries whose money I wouldn't take, like if it's connected to a regime. Right. So yeah. I would take their money. I'll say that right now. If they want, <laughs> whoever it is, if they want to fly tablet over there, we'll t- we'll go. Right. Sam Soleimani, if you're listening, Mark Oppenheimer <laughs> does bar mitzvahs, christenings, barbecues. Totally. Anything you'd like. Oh, but I'd love to perform in Israel. So if there's anyone in, in your listening audience that could make that happen. I could. The Israeli stand-up scene, though, is kind of, kind of you know, it's not that great, I don't think. It's a, it's a kind of new form still for most of the world. Yeah. yeah. So, Nagin, you have a question for us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so basically, uh, you know, I date a lot of dudes and, like, there would be... Inevitably, um, a Jewish guy who would date me, and then after you know, courting the whole thing, and then after a few months, he'd be like, "Oh yeah, this could never be serious because you're not Jewish." And this has happened to every friend of mine I live that I know in New York City um, who is not Jewish, but they are like uh, heavily approached by Jewish men who then after a few months are like, "Oh yeah, I can't be serious about you." Um, And so, what do you guys think about these dudes? Uh, What's the deal? I think they're testing you to see if your response is, but I'll convert. I'll convert. Oh, really? Yeah, I think I think they want you that to That never even occurred to me. Yeah, well, that's why you come to a panel of experts. <laughs> so next time. And your parents don't do the same thing that Jewish parents do. And no. Say, like, he has to be Muslim Absolutely or else people not. flip no, him. They yeah. never did. Because yeah. it's possible to say, like, Mom, I, m- I met this girl. She's not Jewish, but I really love her. Like, that conversation happens. And I think guys are just, like, stupid and... 
I hate them. Yeah, but do you is are they just living in fear that the parents are going to get really? Ups- I mean, is it is they, the parental pool that strong? No, it's not. It's like this this. You don't want to inconvenience yourself. You don't want to like have to articulate your beliefs about religion enough so that you could say, okay, this is what's important to me. If we were to get married, I'd want to do these things. You, it's easy to just not articulate that and just marry, you know, sort of say like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. I have no no ability to change that, no agency. You take a that's... very dim view of Jewish men, Stephanie, for yeah. someone living in sin with a Jewish well, man. I'm living in you. sin, yeah. I agree with Stephanie to this extent. They're not articulating what they really mean. It's easier to say, oh, we'll never work than to articulate what they really mean, which is these things are important to me. Is there a way that you could work into that life? Yeah, see, that would be I would completely respect that kind of statement. You know, I think someone who does that probably falls into a way too large pool of people for whom um, things are important, but not in any way that they had ever bothered uh, thinking about and working through and considering. And therefore, this is the easiest kind of, you know, mark to hit. I can't marry you because you're not Jewish. Instead of saying, okay, well, what does being Jewish actually mean to me? You know, God forbid it may involve some studying and some actual commitment. Right. That would be hard and an investment of money right. that you have to make when you send your kid to a Jewish day school as <laughs> someone who does that. Basically, it's all about um, making your, your life choices, Leo. It's If you want to make my life choices, then go ahead and make my life choices. If you want to make your own life choices, go ahead and do that too. But, but don't play that game in which you're like, this is great. You're so amazing and beautiful and smart and I love you, but... Uh, there's some sort of archaic uh, earth feeling that I never bothered dealing with, you know, when I was 13. So now I'm just going to go ahead and say, no, we, we, it, it'll never work out for us. It seems very millennial, like, oh, this is hard. Let's yeah, just stop no, that's, doing I think it. That's exactly right. I also think that this is hard for a lot of Jews. Jews are very bad at articulating why they care, because we tend not to believe the tenets of our religion in any sort of literal sense. So one way to offload that sense of caring is, oh, we just love Israel. Right, rather than actual do, doing the religious piece of it, and another way is, well, I married a Jewish girl, I must care. Right, right. So it's it's yeah. Right. I think we we agree it's cheap and easy, and we apologize. Well, yeah, no, it's, it's really funny because it's also rampant. Like everyone I know has this exact story. Well, the yeah. important thing is you're dating Jewish men. The important <laughs> thing is you find us attractive. I've dated multiple Jewish men. Yeah, and you're welcome. <laughs> All right. Finally, a little reader mail. Last week, we spoke with lexicographer Erin McKean, founder of Wordnik. She said that one of her favorite Yiddish words was nookschlepper, which means somebody who follows behind you, doing your bidding, sucking up, a sort of toady or groupie. None of us had heard of that word. But several of you out there, you unorthodox people, wrote in to point out that Erin must have meant not nookschlepper, but nachschlepper from nach for after or still, and schlep, which is to drag along. So a nachschlepper is a tag-along, someone who just won't stop following you, which makes perfect sense. Thanks to all of you who wrote in. Keep those corrections coming. We're at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. And Liel has selected a letter of the week for us from our overflowing mailbag. Liel, what do you have? There is at least one Iranian, yours truly, who listens to your podcast. So if you could please take the condescending and frankly quite bitchy attitude down a notch, it would be great best Iranian listener. This is a time of year in which we sincerely ask for forgiveness. And I, uh, being probably the source of said bitchiness and condescension, 
um, would like to apologize and, and assure our listeners, Iranian or otherwise, that uh, whenever a certain tone is taken, um, it is usually taken against certain regimes, uh, not in uh, joy, but in frustration that the lives of so many uh, are repressed uh, by, by horrific governments uh, that keep them down and deny them basic freedoms. And all that we have said, uh, every way in which we have sinned, has been done out of a desire to see in this year of our Lord, 5776, every human being, uh, Israeli, Palestinian, Iranian, American, uh, free and happy. Amen. Amen. Some mazel tovs of the week, perhaps. I'd like to offer one to Stephanie Butnick, who by the time you've heard this will have turned 28 years old, thus officially entering her late 20s. I feel like I've been here a while at heart. <laughs> what are plans for the birthday? They're, they're private. They're late 20s kind they're, of plans. You know, very, sitting very at classy home. classy and sophisticated. Watching, watching Golden Girls. <laughs> I have a mazel tov, and it's going out to Andy Samberg, who hosted the Emmys this week and did an excellent job. We Call record. <laughs> Liel, any mazel tovs? We record this on a Monday, uh, September 21st, and I would like to offer the most sincere mazel tov to my rabbi, uh, St. Leonard Cohen, who turns 81 years today, uh, for continuing uh, to give us a manual for living with defeat. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, dare I say. Mazel tov, Rabbi. Hallelujah. We love mail. If you'd like to send some mazel tovs, we'll read them. Uh, unorthodox at tabletmag.com is our address. You can also send voice memos. We are a production of Tablet Magazine. We ourselves, Liel and Stephanie and I, are actually a production of Tablet Magazine. But the podcast is produced by Julie Subrin with superior assistance from Sarah Ivry. Our rabbinic supervision this week is from Rav Avi Coleman from Lakewood, New Jersey, who wrote us a very, very touching note about how we could be better in the coming year. Our website is tabletmag.com. Our music is by Golem. See you in two weeks. <laughs>